Hello and welcome again to Bill's Facebook Studies. It is a uh, chilly Tuesday afternoon in Northeast Texas. Love the fall and it's a beautiful time of year. We actually have some uh, very cool temperatures here. Got some much needed rain. Always need rain around these parts. And the temperature is dropping a bit, but we're continuing on with our Bible studies through Eflagard Smith's the Daily Bible. Here it is the middle of November, and that means we are getting close to rounding out this year's study. We're about a month into the New Testament, and that means that we're getting close to the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and uh, we'll be reading in, about the uh, crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ our Savior. Uh, and that's an exciting thing, but we're going to take a look at some things leading up to that before we get there. I need to give a special shout out, though. First of all, happy birthday to my wonderful wife. On Sunday, uh, she celebrated her birthday. We had a wonderful weekend, and it was marked by many wonderful notes from all of you, and we appreciate that so very much. There might be a few pictures of her uh, if you scroll down on my Facebook page. I'm not saying there isn't, but I appreciate everyone's well wishes and continued thoughts and love and prayers for her and for me and for uh, our ministry here in Tyler. Thank you so very much. As we look to the end of Jesus' life in these last uh, moments, days of teaching, uh, we're going to see some interesting things today, but I want us to begin by just summarizing a little bit of the end of, of uh, Jesus' public teaching role because that's what we are looking at this week, and, and that's what we're looking at today in our study before we get to that upper room in the Last Supper. Uh, but I do want us to make note of some things in, in uh, Jesus' life and teaching. He really goes toe-to-toe with the Jewish leaders uh, in Matthew chapters 20 and 21 and 22 and 23. Um, we hear him going back and forth as they question him and try to trap him on different questions that sound sincere but that really aren't. And you've read through a lot of those. Those are very interesting, and I enjoy uh, reading through those and hearing how Jesus responds, whether it's uh, about whether you should pay taxes and he gets a, a coin and says whose inscription is on it, whose portrait, and, and then he says give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's great answer. The two great commandments show up during these uh, passages as we've looked at this time in Jesus' teaching. Uh, the Sadducees, uh, the Jewish sect that did not believe in the resurrection, questioned Jesus with that crazy question about a woman who's uh, married to a man and he died. And so she married his younger brother and the law of leveret marriage is what that's called to bring up descendants for the one who had died. And and that goes along, all seven brothers, and then the woman dies, and they ask whose husband, uh, whose wife will she be in heaven? And Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. They knew all about the scriptures, but they didn't know the God who was revealed in them, and they had not looked objectively at those scriptures to learn the will of God. And so he reminds them that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, uh, are very much alive because the Lord says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it, it's just a great back and forth. Jesus challenges them 
uh, looking at a passage from Psalm 110 and some other places. So lots of, lots of great moments there. Uh, in John 12, Jesus says, hey, I don't judge the world. Uh, if you want to know what the judge is in the last day, the words that I have spoken will judge in the last day. It's just a reminder there towards the end of John chapter 12 how important the word of God is. Jesus clearly says it matters what you believe. It matters how you live. Uh, and the doctrine that you follow must be the word of God. We're not going to get that perfectly, but that's no excuse, uh, no justification for us not seeking to know and to learn and to obey and to teach the word of God to others. That's exactly what Ezra did in the Old Testament days uh, of the exile and the return from the exile. And that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do as well. In chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus really goes on a tear. <laughs> you can't say this was some mild-mannered man who never raised his voice. In Matthew 23, we find those seven woes. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, he tells the religious leaders in the familiar translation. And it's one thing after another in that great chapter. Uh, very challenging for those uh, who would say it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you live. It does matter to Jesus, and it matters uh, it should matter to all of us. And that brings us to Matthew chapter 24. This is a very confusing chapter. It's a very challenging chapter. Matthew 24, uh, Mark 13, and Luke 21 all record these words of Jesus as he's uh, talking about future events, something that is to come. And as you read through this chapter and as you read through the parallel passages, I believe that Jesus is talking about a couple of things. First of all, he's talking about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Solomon's temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century BC. And now Herod had rebuilt the temple after had, had added some improvements to it after uh, Zerubbabel and others had rebuilt it in the days of the return from the exile. And so now it's looking pretty nice, pretty good again, not quite to Solomon's level, but pretty good. And Jesus says, I tell you, not one stone will be left unturned as far as this place is concerned. And so the disciples want to know, <laughs> tell us, tell us dates, tell us details. We want to know exactly when this is going to happen. What's it going to look like? And so Jesus talks a lot about that in these chapters, including Matthew 24. And he's speaking specifically, I believe, about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 by the Romans. Uh, some of the New Testament was still being written at that time, but uh, certainly not Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John. It doesn't seem perhaps the Gospel of John is the only one because it doesn't really talk about this prophecy of Jesus very much. Very likely it had already been fulfilled. Uh, but in A.D. 70, the Romans attacked Jerusalem and lay waste to this temple that Herod had helped to renovate after the exiles uh, had rebuilt it. And now we just have some, uh, in Jerusalem, there, there are just some relics from that and that western wall and other places uh, that show where that temple was and what it may have looked like. Uh, and so in Matthew 24, they're asking him about this. You know, when is this all going to happen? And Jesus basically tells them, look, it, when 
is the wrong question. When doesn't matter. <laughs> if you're living right day to day, then the when part isn't all that significant. Um, and so he goes on and he says, watch out in verse four, that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Jesus says there's going to be false prophets, there's going to be false teachers, there's going to be false messiahs. And he warns them and says, look, this is all going to keep happening until the end of time. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. It's all going to continue to take place. Wars and rumors of wars, he will say later. He'll talk about the false prophets, and he says in Matthew 24, verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Whatever he's talking about, whether it's the destruction of Jerusalem or the end of the world, Jesus says there's, there's going to be a testing of faith. And the one who stands firm to the end is the one who will be saved. It's not a matter, it's a marathon. I've run a few of those. And uh, you can't give everything that you have at any moment, but rather the idea is to last throughout the race, to finish the race. Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And that's what Jesus calls on all of us to do. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He goes on and he talks about some confusing things, probably, uh, possibly drawing from uh, the book of, of Daniel and uh, some others. And uh, in this passage, he talks about how hard it will be for a pregnant woman or uh, if you're, uh, you know, if, if whatever your situation is, he says, don't, don't try to go, go back. Don't try to go back. In fact, head for the hills, he's basically saying. And if it was talking about the end of time and his return and the end of the world, I, it wouldn't, that part wouldn't matter. There would be no use in heading for the hills. There would be no special danger for those who were uh, pregnant at the time or others. Um, it would be, it, it would be the end, wherever you are, whatever your condition. And so I think for a while he's talking about uh, that time when the Romans will come and it will be a horrible, horrible thing. He speaks in what we call apocalyptic language. In verse 29, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And you say, well, I don't remember seeing historically that ever happening. But remember, that's apocalyptic language. That means it's language that's very dramatic, very graphic, uh, very spectacular. In fact, that same kind of language was used in Joel 2 uh, to describe the coming of the church. And Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. None of those things happened physically, but it was an extraordinary, incredible time with great changes taking place, and I believe that's what Jesus is talking about here. But then in verse 36, there seems to be a bit of a transition in Matthew 24. Instead of talking about those days, he says this in verse 36, but about that day or hour. So it may be that this is a transition. Again, I, I think it's still under discussion. 
um, which Jesus is talking about. But it seems for the most part, beginning in verse 36 into the end, he's talking about that time when he will ultimately return. Listen to verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay, so why are we so why why are we so captivated by answering the when question? Jesus tells us there's no answer to that. You can't know the answer to that. Jesus says even himself at that time did not know. Perhaps he does now in his resurrected ascended state. Uh, but he says that's not the right question. That part doesn't matter. And he talks about Noah and how uh, when Noah was preparing for decades and um, People probably made fun of him and nobody joined him except his family. But then when that rain started coming and the flood water started coming up and brought the boat up off the ground, it was pretty clear that it was time. Uh, and there were a whole lot of people that weren't ready, that weren't watching for it. Noah and his family uh, were. And so he says in verse 42, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And then he tell, gives another example in the next verses when he talks about a homeowner. And the homeowner, if he knows when the thief is coming, he'll be ready for him. He'll be sitting in the rocking chair in the living room with his shotgun in his lap. He'll have the police there waiting, something. He'll be ready. He'll be ready. And that's what Jesus is saying, but the homeowner doesn't know when the thief will come. And so it's written in scripture that the son of man will come as a thief in the night. And that just means unexpectedly. You won't be expecting it, so be expecting it at any time. Therefore, watch, because you don't know when that's going to happen. Uh, and then he tells this story uh, in, in verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant? Well, it's the one who's doing what his master has told him to do when he returns. He doesn't know when he's going to return, and so he's being a faithful servant all the time. And that's what Jesus tells us to do. Verse 44 of Matthew 24, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. We don't live sinlessly, but we live faithfully. And so if we're living faithfully every day and looking to Jesus, looking to his word, seeking to be a good person, loving our God, loving our neighbor as ourselves, um, we'll be ready. We'll be ready. And through the sacrifice of his blood, we'll be forgiven and we'll be taken into heaven for eternity. In chapter 25, there are three great parables told. We're getting the end of the parables, and they're all about the end of the world. They're all about the same message, which is be ready. Be ready. The parable of the ten virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom, and five of them had extra oil, five of them didn't. And when the bridegroom uh, delayed in coming, then they used up all of their oil. And so when they said, okay, he's here, he's here, the five that had oil extra put it in their lamps and lit them. And the others said, let us have some of your oil. And they said, no, we can't because we'll run out. Go to the store quick. And so they go, but by the time they come back, there's, there's, um, they, they are not allowed in. And so Jesus says, therefore, verse 13 of Matthew 25, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Are you seeing a theme repeating here? 
I hope so. In spite of all of the prophecies that are out there, all of the people who bilk money out of of a genuine uh, people who just want to know the truth and obey it and and are scared, literally afraid of when Jesus is going to come back. You can't know when. And there's no use in trying to figure that out. Just ask yourself, okay, what? What should I be doing? How? How should I be living? That's the question that can be answered. And that's what we can be doing. So that if he comes today, if he comes a thousand years from now, either one of those is a possibility, I believe. And when he does come, we'll, we'll be ready. Not because we're perfect, but because we're living faithfully. Uh, the second parable is remember about those, the talents, the bags of gold. It, it is an amount of money, a huge amount of money. And so Jesus gives some to three different ones and, uh, and some double their, their uh, uh, amount. And another one just digs a hole and hides his. And, uh, and Jesus says, that's, that's, that's not the right thing. The first two, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. But the last one, he says, you wicked, lazy servant. And so he condemns him. But again, Jesus' message is, look, use the gifts that you have for good, uh, for eternal things, for helping others, for uh, glorifying God. And then the last parable in Matthew 25 is this great parable of the sheep and the goats, starting in verse 31. Um, and and Jesus talks about that. He says, you know, when, when I come in my glory, I'm going to put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And that's not significant. It's just one side or the other. It doesn't matter. Sheep or goats doesn't matter. Jesus is just saying, like the other parables that we saw, such as the net, where the angels come and separate the good from the bad, or the wheat and the weeds, the angels come and separate the good from the bad. At that time, Jesus says, the good and the bad will be separated, the good and the evil, uh, the faithful and the unfaithful. And he says, the faithful, I'll look at them and I'll say to the sheep, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. You, you reached out to me with help. And they will say, well, we never saw you like that. When did we see you like that? And Jesus gives those immortal words. It's when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And that's such an important statement for us to remember. If Jesus were here, well, oh boy, we would put on the dog, as we say sometimes. We would, we would go the second, third, and tenth mile to try to, to try to do what's right and to please him. But Jesus says, you know, if you're just living that way every day with whoever you find, whoever I bring into your path, and you share a good word for me or you help them along the way, then, um, then that's work that has been done for me. And likewise, he turns to the others, to the goats, to the evil, to the unfaithful. And he says, look, I was, I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing. I was uh, naked and you didn't help me. I was sick or in prison and you did nothing. You didn't come see me. You didn't check on me. And Jesus, and they of course say, Lord, when did we see you like that? We certainly would have done something. But Jesus says, when you didn't do that for one of these least of these, you were not doing it to me. And so Jesus reminds us that we are to be ready. We are to be watching. We are to be faithful every day. 
It doesn't have to be, Lord, you tell me when you're going to come. And boy, for a week before that time or for 24 hours before that time, man, I'm going to be the perfect Christian. You realize how silly that sounds, right? We're called to be faithful to God every day, to be faithful servants and disciples of Christ every day. Again, not sinless, not perfect, but but on that path towards righteousness, seeking to do the will of the Father, just as Jesus told us that we were to do, studying his word, putting it into our lives, finding opportunities to share the love and word of Christ with others. That's what we're called to do until he comes. And again, if it's before this Facebook lesson is over, which would be great, and it could happen, or if it's 5,000 years from now, it doesn't matter. All we're called to do is to live faithfully to him every day. And then we'll be good whenever that happens. Well, that brings us to Matthew 26, and it brings us to this interesting discussion in F. Lagarde Smith's Daily Bible about the exactly when did the Last Supper take place. Jesus sends a few of his disciples into the city, and they find that upper room, and they get ready for him to observe the Passover. Is this a Passover feast? Well, I'll tell you. Matthew, Mark, and Luke sure seem to think so. And so I think it's a Passover. And how does that measure up with the rest of what is taught in Scripture? Because John seems to indicate that the Passover was about to happen after Jesus was arrested. And, uh, and so that's kind of an interesting thing. And then F. Lagarde Smith brings out that whole question of how could Jesus say three days and three nights if he was killed on Friday and raised on Sunday? And that, those are legitimate uh, questions. Uh, there are lots of answers to those. And, and what Dr. Smith says is that instead of go, holding to the traditional timetable of Jesus being crucified, uh, having the Last Supper on Thursday night and being crucified on Friday, and then having um, uh, his resurrection on Sunday, uh, he puts it all a, a day earlier. He has the Last Supper on Wednesday evening, which would be Thursday, the way the Jews kept time. Their days went from evening to evening, uh, from dusk to dusk. And so that would be their Thursday on Wednesday evening, our time. And then on Thursday, when the Passover lambs were being killed, Jesus was crucified. This is according to Eflagard Smith's timetable. And then he would be in the tomb and then resurrected on Sunday. Uh, there are a couple of verses in John that seem to bear out that the Jewish leaders felt like they were waiting to be uh, able to take the Passover. They wouldn't go in to Pilate. They asked him to come out to them because they didn't want to be unclean before the Passover. Even during the uh, Last Supper when Judas left uh, to let the Jewish leaders know where Jesus was, the other disciples thought he was just going to get some things to, to be ready. Uh, so there's, there's other explanations as well. There were a couple of different methods of keeping time. A good commentary will tell you about this, uh, that the Jewish leaders likely were on a different timetable than Jesus and his disciples. There were other, um, other meals associated with uh, fellowship meals and the Passover other than the Passover meal itself. And it could be that Jesus and his disciples were observing one of those. But I, I just can't accept that because of the clear language in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that this was a Passover meal. And so however you want to say it, however the days work out, 
Jesus meets with his disciples. And Matthew 26 records this along with some of the others. If you read very closely in Luke's version, in Luke 22, you realize that there are two cups. Jesus takes the cup and blesses it and gives it to them. And then he takes the bread and blesses it and gives it to them. And then he takes another cup and blesses it and gives it to them. And if you've ever led a communion meditation and you just decide, oh, I'll just take Luke's version, and then you start reading and you're thinking, wait, uh, what, 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 what? <laughs> well, there's a reason for that. And according to the, to the history that we have of the Jews, at that time, there were four cups associated with the Passover meal. And so Luke just records two of them. The other gospel writers just record one. Uh, and so that's the easy explanation for that. But sometime during that meal, and it was in the context of a meal, that Passover meal, uh, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. And it's been given, it's been broken for you. He gave thanks or blessed it. The word giving thanks is the word Eucharista. It's from that word Eucharist that the uh, Roman Catholic Church, the historical church, has used to describe the pass the uh, Lord's Supper in the days of the church, uh, calling it the Eucharist. It's also called communion, which is the word for fellowship, koinonia. Um, in First Corinthians chapter um, uh, ten, uh, we find that word used, a participation or a communion, uh, used it to to refer to the Lord's Supper, as Paul speaks of it in First Corinthians ten. Of course, in 1 Corinthians 11, we have uh, that great passage that Paul uses to describe this event that we're reading about in Matthew 26, when Jesus first gathered with his disciples. And remember, uh, Paul wasn't there. Paul received this inspiration directly from the Lord. He says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on that night when he was betrayed, he took bread and on he goes taken right out of Matthew 26, but something that Paul learned firsthand from the Lord. Uh, and in that passage in 1 Corinthians 11, he calls it the Lord's Supper. I think any of those are biblical names. It's certainly a giving of thanks. That's the term Eucharist. It's certainly a communion. That's that term uh, koinonia or fellowship or communion, participation in the body and blood of Christ. And it's certainly the Lord's Supper. Um, and so all of that is based on this. It's different than this. This is a Passover meal, I believe. This is the Last Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's the Last Supper. And it's taken in the context of that Passover meal where they were reflecting on the deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And so there was no leaven, no yeast to be found in the house. That was according to the law. And the bread they took was unleavened bread. And the grape juice, they, the wine they took was fruit of the vine some form of grape juice or, or wine. And that's what uh, the, the disciples partook of. And when the first century church gathered to meet, then they also took of the Lord's Supper, not the Last Supper. It wasn't a Jewish uh, remembrance. It was now a Christian remembrance. But they took bread and they gave thanks. They blessed it and they broke it and they passed it to each other. And they reminded themselves of Jesus' words, this is my body. And in the same way, they took the cup and they gave thanks. They blessed it. They poured it out to each other. And they, um, they said, this is the blood of Jesus poured out for us for forgiveness of sins. 
and it commemorates this moment, the not just the Last Supper, but especially the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When the first century Christians uh, did their Lord's Supper in Acts 20, verse 7, tells us they did it every week on the first day of the week, even when Paul was traveling on his mission journeys. It says in Acts chapter 20, they found the church when they were at Troas, and on the first day of the week when we had gathered together to break bread, Paul preached to them. Uh, and I believe it's talking about the communion there. It was very important to them. It should be very important to us. It should be something that takes place every single Lord's Day, every first day of the week. Um, and that's what the church did for years, centuries actually, until finally um, uh, we got lazy as a human race and started partaking of it less than once a week. It was a wonderful remembrance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and then we get to uh, John 13. And John 13 is that story. It's in the upper room. It's during this time. And it's uh, probably something that happens close to the beginning when they're coming in and all of their feet are dirty. It says that Jesus, knowing who he was, knowing what was about to happen, knowing where he was going, took off his clothes, put a towel around him, and got a basin of water and went from one dirty apostle's foot to the other and washed every single one of them. And then at the end, they were too proud to do it. But Jesus, the Son of God, did it. Even Judas, who was still in there at the time, washed his feet as well, knowing what he was going to do. And then after Jesus was finished, he put his clothes on and he told them, Look, do you see what I've done for you? You call me Lord and Master, John 13 says, and you're right, I am. And if I, your Lord and Master, have done this for you, I want you to do it, not for me, Jesus says. That's what we would expect him to say. But instead, he says, I want you to do it for each other and for others, just as I have done for you. It's an incredible moment. And then Jesus goes on and talks to them about loving each other the way he has loved them, about being that uh, vine, that, that branch that is connected to the vine, and all the other wonderful things that we read in that great passage in John 13 through 17, his high priestly prayer, as it's called, perhaps the prayer he made at Gethsemane. Um, and that's going to be our lesson on Thursday. That's a great passage. Talks so much about the Holy Spirit. Talks about suffering. Talks about overcoming. I have overcome the world, he says. And he prays that wonderful prayer calls us to, um, to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, and reminds us that we will suffer, but he has prayed for us. I'm looking forward to that lesson on Thursday. This one is just an amazing end of the teaching and public ministry of Jesus that all comes together in that upper room as Jesus reminds us, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which has been poured out for you. And it's through that act, through that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we'll be reading about on Thursday and especially next Tuesday. That's how we are saved. That's how we are forgiven. That is our hope. And that's where we get our joy. I look forward to visiting with you more about John 13 through 17 uh, this coming Thursday. God bless.